You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. Bible, let's turn to page 724. We're looking through Isaiah, verse, uh, chapter 40, and this morning we're going to be looking at verses 12 to 20. The prophet has been told that he is to bring a message of comfort to God's people, and really this chapter and the rest of Isaiah is that message of comfort. What would you say to the families of the 26 Coptic Christians beheaded on the beach in Libya? What do you say to the Christian mother who's just lost her child? How do you cope when you become aware of just how hostile and negative your workmates, friends, family are towards the gospel and to your faith? How would you answer Stephen Fry and his eloquent attacks by him and his fellow atheists on God? Well, Isaiah had to face all these issues and then some. How can God's people be comforted when they're taken into exile, when Jerusalem has been defeated, when the temple has been desecrated, when the people are numbed and traumatized. What is the message? What is the good news? What's fascinating in this passage is very similar to Job. What's fascinating is God doesn't tell Isaiah to focus on the people's circumstances, their depression, their, their sorrow, and their pain. But in verse 31, he says we are to hope in the Lord. And it's interesting. I think this is true all the time. God's answer to our problems is not to have us go two and two, then that's four, or this is how it's sorted out, or this is how you join the dots, or this is how the puzzle works, or this is the clear picture. God's answer to his people is to reveal who he is. And as we look at this, I I hope that you will see uh, the relevance of that. Because right now, you could be sitting here and thinking, well, actually, that's not my greatest need right now. There's a whole lot of other things that are my really, really great needs. But I hope that you will see that the knowledge of God is actually the one that meets all your needs. I want to read these verses, and I'm going to read them in the King James Version. We don't use the King James Version here because it is incredibly uh, dated and it's difficult for people to follow. But uh, it's, it's worthwhile, if you're a Christian, it's worthwhile you having a copy of the King James Version. It's not as somebody once argued, I, I had a man get up and walk out of a church service once saying, you're using the devil's Bible, which was the NIV. We should be using the Bible as originally given, which was the King James Version. Now, it's difficult to argue against such ignorance, I'm afraid to say, but um, I, I tried, uh, but he still left. But um, the King James Version is a hugely significant and important version, especially in the development of the English language, and perhaps nowhere more so than in the book of Isaiah, 
where the King James writers got Isaiah just brilliantly because they realized it was poetry. Uh, and um, I, I've always just found reading this in the King James Version as just being stunning. So I'm going to read uh, verse 12 to verse 20. Who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and meted out heavens with the span and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord or being his counselor hath taught him? With whom took he counsel and who instructed him? And taught him in the path of judgment, and taught him knowledge, and showed to him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket, and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor the beast thereof sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted to him less than nothing and vanity. To whom then will ye liken God, or what likeness will you compare unto him? The workman melteth a graven image, and the goldsmith spreadeth it over with gold, and casteth silver chains. He that is so impoverished that he hath no oblation chooseth a tree that will not rot. He seeketh unto him a cunning workman to prepare a graven image that shall not be moved. Have ye not known? Have ye not heard? Hath it not been told you from the beginning? Have ye not understood from the foundations of the earth? And so on. I was listening to a program yesterday about the Oscar-winning film, it's the Oscars today, uh, Chariots of Fire. Extraordinary, wonderful program. Uh, you'll get it on I player uh, and the Oscar goes to and you remember in that film how it records uh, Eric Idle when he should have been running on the Sunday preaching in the church in Paris and reading from Isaiah 40 the nations are as a drop in the bucket um, and that's what we look at now what is intriguing in this is the comfort that is being brought is the teaching of God as the creator. And I think the doctrine of God as the creator is under particular attack in our day and that Christians get very confused and we tend to back off. How, how does God being the creator bring us comfort? In the Scottish Parliament at the moment, there's a petition going through there to ban creationism from schools. Um, and the word creationism has become a very loaded term. It can mean Young earth, six-day creationism. It can mean anyone who just believes in a creator. Now, I think as Christians, we uh, get sidetracked here a lot because we start arguing about the same thing that the world argues. There are Christians who believe, and I'm not going to go into all of this, who believe in a young earth creation. There are other Christians who believe in an old earth creation. And there are other Christians who believe in what's called theistic evolution. I know in, in front of me that there are people who represent all different views. But I think the danger is that we forget what Scripture is teaching and how important it is to our lives that God is the creator. 
You can argue in all of the positions and all of their side positions, there are problems in each one. But it is incredibly vital for us to recognize the practicalities of the teaching that God is the creator. I think these verses rebuke our small ideas and our failing faith. Verse 18, we are not to go for human imaginings, uh, making the idol and so on. Verse 27, or our, our doubts about God, will God do this? Will God do that? We wonder whether God is inadequate. Seriously, you might say, no, no, I worship God. But then in what you think and what you say and how you behave, it kind of has this idea of, can God really do this? Did God really do this? We wonder whether God is inadequate. We wonder whether he can deal with our situation or if he wants to. But the danger is not that God is inadequate. That's not the problem. The danger is... The absolute danger for us is that we forget who God is and we forget what God is like. A man called Webb says this about this passage. Isaiah therefore states the age-old truth in vivid language so that it will penetrate the dullness of those who are almost past hope, take fresh hold of them and lift them up. So what Isaiah is saying to God's people, he's saying, look up, look up, lift up your eyes, look, look, behold, your God. And that's what we do. So let's notice this first teaching. Oops, could you move it on, please, Jacintha? Because I think it's. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked out off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a bucket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Isaiah says, God is all-powerful because he created everything. He created all matter. There isn't a single thing that you can touch, see, taste, smell that God did not create. Not a single thing. He asks lots of rhetorical questions. He's saying, who's done this? Who's done this? Who's measured it? Who's worked it out? They're not hostile questions. They're just great questions. And this is where faith begins. It begins by acknowledging God as creator. Hebrews 11, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Ultimately, what you see, this wood, that chair, the person beside you, the tree out there, the, the moon, the stars, ultimately, everything that you see was not made out of stuff at one point, there was nothing, absolutely nothing. There was no thing and there was no time. And then God created, the Latin term is used, ex nihilo, out of nothing, he created everything. That is the beginning of faith, to understand that everything has come ultimately from God, who created out of nothing. It talks here about how he blends things together, the waters and the dust. They don't just evolve. Now, God could have used evolution. I'm not going to get into that argument. That's not really the point. When someone says, I believe in evolution, and they set it up as opposite to God, they're wrong. Because you've still got to say, evolution is the evolution of living matter. 
how, how, do, how it evolves. You have to have something to evolve. The question is, why is there something rather than nothing? That's the greatest question of all. And what God did was he created the universe in such a way that we can end up with this immense variety that's even all around us that we can see and we only see a tiny part. And so what Isaiah says, this is what God does. He takes the waters and the dust. And there's a wonderful contrast because it's the waters and the dust, the very basic substances of this earth, and he's contrasting that with the heavens and the earth. And look at the words that he uses. They're incredible words. He measured, he marked out, he weighed, held. He's talking about this being precision work. This is not God saying, okay, I'll create a few things, bung them together and see what happens. I'll tell you what this is like. This is like, uh, take the back off your phone. It's very, well, don't actually, because you'll wreck it, but it's very precise. It's very, very precise. It's wonderful what you can get on your phone, but why can you get it? Because some genius somewhere has worked out how to do all this. Because in the back of this phone, there is incredible power. I, I mentioned about 41 years ago. I remember when I got my first computer. It was one of these ones that when you printed, I mean, you guys, anyone under 25 would laugh at this now. But you talk about, never ever complain about your computer being slow. You have no idea. This was slower than a typewriter. You go, and then it would think about it before it would finally decide to print out one letter. And it would make this huge noise like this, you know. And and it's incredible how, how much that has developed. But it's nothing compared with the universe. It's nothing compared with the intricacies of of nature. It's like um, uh, Lizzie, our, our Lizzie with her jewelry. You know, she doesn't just go, okay, uh, I'm just going to bung this in and see what comes out. Her jewelry is brilliant because it's so well designed and it's so intricate and it takes so much time. It's marked off. In fact, the word that's used here, if um, uh, we were to be teaching physics in Hebrew, you would use this word. Fine-tuning. It's really what it means. God has finely tuned the whole universe. Now, the Bible is saying this before we had worked out what fine-tuning actually meant. But it really is quite extraordinary. Those of you who know this, um, please bear with me just for a minute, but for those of you who don't, I think it's, it's wonderful to know. For evolution to work, the conditions have to be just right. For life to be, the conditions have to be just right. Stephen Hawking points out that if the rate of expansion one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in 10,000, million, 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 the universe would have re-collapsed before it reached its present state. If it had been greater by one part in a million, then the stars and the planets would not have been able to form. It was so precise that to be a tiny bit out... The universe, the whole universe, could not exist. Hawking, in his book, uh, Brief History of Time, says the universe looks as though it was created by a God who intended to create beings just like us. And uh, as I've said before, the reason that book is so difficult to read is because 
Hawking, because he's an atheist, denies that it was created by a god. And so he spends this huge amount of time in incredibly complex detail trying to argue why it couldn't have been God that did it. But the most obvious thing is what he says. Constants like the speed of light, the force of gravity, electromagnetism, the properties of carbon, all need to work precisely together for there to be life. Now that is what the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't come and give us a science lesson. The Bible doesn't tell us about thermodynamics and and, and the carbon and all the rest of it. It just says simply this, that God created the world and he created the universe and he created it in such a way that it works, that it's very precise. And modern science goes, yeah, that's right. We can see that. Isaiah 34 says this, look in the scroll of the Lord and read. None of these will be missing. Not one will lack her mate for it is his mouth that has given the order and his spirit will gather them together. He allots their portions. His hand distributes them by measure. They will possess it forever and dwell there from generation to generation. The Bible is not a scientific textbook, but it is explaining why science works. It's explaining that there is a God. You see, actually, you couldn't do science ultimately unless you accept that there is a God. Why? Because, because you believe there is one creator, you believe that the creation is constant, that you can study it, that you can examine it. If you believe that the world is chaos, if you believe that the universe is chaos, if you believe there are many gods or no gods, then it's very difficult to accept the consistency of the universe. And that's why he uses phrases here like hollow, scales, bread, basket, balance. These were all measures for small-scale working. I think it's quite humorous. He says, can you hold the universe in the span of your hand? You can't. Can you, can you, can you lift up a star? And he's saying, yes, but this is what God does. Can you lift all the waters of the sea in your hand? I mean, go down to Broughty Ferry Beach and you know, try scoop the water out. Imagine if you're trying to do that. You're going away like mad, scooping the water, and someone comes and says, what are you doing? You say, I'm emptying the sea. Oh, are they going to send you away? Because, I mean, it's crazy. I'm emptying the sea. It's desperate. You know, you go and build a wee sandcastle, and you, the tide's coming in, and you're digging away like mad to try and stop it collapsing. You lose every time. Suppose you have a JCB digger. You're still going to lose. But Isaiah uses this wonderful picture. God is just like, in his hand, in his hand, are all the stars of the universe. Psalm 104, praise the Lord, O my soul. O my, O Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. He wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent and lays the beams of his upper chambers on their waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messenger, flames of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. By the way, when you read that, you, you, honestly, there, there is something wrong with you if you're reading it going, well, this teaches that God put the earth flat on a foundation and that the earth doesn't move. That's not what it's teaching at all. It's poetic imagery teaching that the whole universe and the world especially is in God's hands. You covered it with the deep as with a garment. The water stood above the mountains, but at your rebuke the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. They flowed over the mountains. They went down into the valleys to the place you assigned for them. You set a boundary they cannot cross. Never again will they cover the earth. You see, all these measures 
Calvin, uh, I love, I'm going to quote Calvin a lot today, sorry, because I just love what he says. When he names measures, says Calvin's, which are used by men in very small matters, he accommodates himself to our ignorance. For thus does the Lord often prattle with us. I love that. God prattles with us. And what he means by that is God accommodates to us. He puts in our language concepts that we can understand, balances and measures and so on. He accommodates to us. Calvin goes on. Thus does the Lord often prattle with us and borrow comparisons from matters that are familiar to us when he speaks of his majesty, that our ignorant and limited minds may better understand his greatness and excellence. We are crazy. We are so crazy. We think our minds have the ability to judge God. God accommodates himself to us and uses language and concepts that we can understand to show us not how great we are, but how great he is. Today, we can measure so much more than they could in uh, Isaiah's day. Indeed, since the invention of the barometer, we've been able to measure things that the human eye cannot see and the human hand cannot span. But we still haven't got there, have we? Can you count all the stars? No, you can't. There's a hundred billion billion. Someone's worked out. I don't know who's been counting, but it keeps changing. There's a wonderful YouTube clip of Bill Bailey talking about Stephen Hawking and about a billion billion and a hundred billion billion. He says, I get stuck when I go past 10. My mind can't cope with a hundred billion billion. You know, and of course we can't cope with a hundred billion billion. You want to freak your mind out? Go out, get some nice clear sky, look up to the stars, and work out that the star that you see, you can't. I mean, these people who are planning going to Mars. You go to Mars, I mean, who wants to go? All right, fine, you want to go to Mars and live the rest of your life there. Supposing you do go to Mars. Do you realize what age you would have to be before you could get to the next star or the next galaxy or the end of this galaxy? I mean, it's so vast. It is incredibly, uh, just astonishing. And Job puts it wonderfully. He says, I gaze at the outer stars and these are but the outer fringe of his power. These are but the outer fringe of his power. For humans, the universe is immeasurable, but not for God. So, Isaiah says, behold your God. He created all these. He created everything. Secondly, verses 13 and 14, God knows everything because he created the mind. Who has understood the mind of the Lord or instructed him as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? If the universe is fine-tuned, then who fine-tuned God? He actually asks, who marked off God? You can mark off the boundaries of the earth. You can mark off the boundaries of the seas. You can, mark even, you can even mark off the boundaries of the universe because it's not eternal. But who marked off God? And the answer is no one because we're not dealing with God as a human construct limited to our understanding and thinking. We are talking about God who really is. Proverbs 8.22, The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works. Before his deeds of old, I was appointed from eternity, from the beginning, before the world began. When there were no oceans, I was given birth. When there were no springs abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the earth or its fields or any of the dust of the world, I was there when he set the heavens in place. 
when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundaries so that the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was the craftsman at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world, and delighting in mankind. It's a beautiful picture of wisdom, and it's a beautiful picture, I think, of Christ. Christ as the creator. But here's the fascinating thing. If you're thinking, and I I hope you are thinking now, this is really difficult at one level. I mean, this is the deepest, 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 most foundational question. What came first, mind or matter? See, John Lennox in God's Undertaker says this. Inevitably, of course, not only those of us who do science, but all of us have to choose the presuppositions with which we start. There are not many options. Essentially, there's just two. Either human intelligence owes its origin to mindless matter. In other words, your intelligence or someone much brainier than you, their intelligence is actually just a result of chance. It just happened. It could have gone a a whole lot of other ways. Either human intelligence owes its origin to mindless matter or there is a creator. In other words, the intelligence produced the matter. It is strange that some people claim that it is their intelligence that leads them to prefer the first to the second. So you have intelligent people saying that their intelligence came from mindless matter. Now, if you really stop and think about that, that doesn't make sense. It really, it's not very intelligent. But the only way you do that is because you want to avoid God. God brings order out of chaos. Creation requires knowledge, but no creature possesses that knowledge. We know that everything that we create requires knowledge. You don't create this without knowledge. Nothing. You, you are full of knowledge. You have a uh, genetic code that is full of knowledge. Everything, every cell, every atom contains knowledge. But where does that knowledge come from? By wisdom, Proverbs 3.19 says, The Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding, he set the heavens in place. By his knowledge, the deeps were divided, and the clouds let drop their dew. Look what Isaiah says. Look at the words he uses. Understood, instructed, counselor, consult, enlighten, knowledge, understand. And then he just lays it. He just puts it out and he says, Who can second guess God? Romans 11.34 Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Listen, you need to grasp this. God does not need your advice. He is infinitely wise. He doesn't need your counsel. And we can't tell God what he doesn't know. You cannot come to God in prayer and say, Oh Lord, I know you don't know this, but you can't. Because he knows. So some people say, well, well, why pray? Well, you pray because you're coming to your heavenly father, because you're pouring your heart out, because he wants to hear from you. But you're not telling him what he doesn't know. Who has instructed God? In prayer, we're not informing God. We're pleading with him. We're praising him. We're confessing. The path of justice. Verse 14. Who's taught him the right way? The mispat, the order of what is fair and right. What a nerve we have as human beings to say, I'm not going to believe in God because his way is unjust, his way is unfair. I am going to tell God what is right. The minute you fall into the trap of thinking that you can tell God what is right, 
your faith is in phenomenal danger. Why? Because you've elevated yourself above God and because you cannot worship a God who has to be told by you what is right and what is wrong. It is absolutely the other way around. Absolutely the other way around. Let me just say one thing about omniscience before we go on, but um, we'll be here all day. But omniscience, a human being who knows it all, they're a pain, aren't they? Why are they a pain? They're a pain because they don't know it all. They just think they know it all. If they knew it all, they'd know, they'd even know that you were thinking they were a pain. I mean, but if they knew it all, it would be different. God knowing it all is something that is a source of immense comfort. By his knowledge, he created. By his knowledge, he does this. See, the minute you have a small view of God, you might think, wow, this is helping me understand. No, it's not. What you're doing is you're setting yourself up for an absolute fall because how did, how did the devil tempt Eve and Adam? Why, well, he came to her and he said, did God really say? And immediately plants doubts about God in her mind. And the minute you start having those doubts, then he can wham, 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 knock you over in lots of different ways. And that's why Isaiah is told, bring them back. Bring them back in the middle of all their troubles. Bring them back to who I am. Verse 15, he goes on. Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They're regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Now what Isaiah then does, starting with God and God's all-powerful creation or creator and God's all-knowing, he then turns to the inhabited world, to the world of humans, of countries, of societies, of cultures, of nations. And he uses, unfortunately in the NIV, it's, it's not here, uh, and it should be because he uses a double emphatic, behold, behold, look, look, see, see. And what he says is, these nations who are overwhelming you, who are swamping you, poor little Judah... They are insignificant compared with God. They are a drop in the bucket. They are dust on the scales. They are atoms. And I love how he uses even the isles. Um, I used to live 200 miles north of here in Sutherland. It's all your perspective, isn't it? Sutherland is 200 miles north of here. It means the Southland. Because if you are a Viking from Shetland or from Norway or from Caithness over Eord, then um, if you understand that, you know what I'm talking about. I'll explain it later if you want, but Sutherland was the Southland. Isn't it funny how we pray in Scotland here on this remote island on the northwest and we pray for the ends of the earth and by that we mean Australia and China. You know, and the Chinese are looking at us going, what? This is the center of the world. You guys are out on the edge of the earth. Well, that was the same for them. If you're a Jew living in Palestine, the Isles were the Mediterranean Isles and possibly beyond. The U.S. and Australia probably weren't even thought of. But if they knew of us here in Dundee, you know, going around our brocks and as picks with our woad and all that kind of stuff, they'd be going, oh, that's the ends of the earth. That's really the ends of the earth. And Isaiah says, but the islands, they're just dust. See, we talk about great nations. We live in Great Britain. Nice humble name for this nation. The Greeks, what a fantastic nation the Greeks had and what a mess they're in now. Rome, go down to the McManus Gallery and you'll see about the power of Rome, the display that's on there now. 
And yet what a mess Italy is in. Constantinople, the Byzantium Empire. Go to Turkey now and see what's there. Russia, China, America, ISIS, the Caliphate. All these people think they're great and powerful. President Putin flexing his muscles, saying what he can do. And verse 17 tells us, supposing the whole world were a collective, it's nothing. It's nothing. Now, you've got to be really careful here. This is not saying that these nations mean nothing to God or us as individuals mean nothing to God. We know that he knows and cares about us. Even the hair on our head is numbered. Psalm 8, though, gets it right. What is man that you care for him? He does, but it's astonishing that he cares for us. It's a comparison that's being made here. Compared with God, we are nothing, and yet look what he does for us. We don't give life, he does. We keep trying to take his role. And again, I I don't have time to go into this, but one of the things that's wrong with the assisted suicide bill in Parliament right now is because human beings are seeking to take to themselves the prerogative of God. We don't give life, we don't take life. That's God. Abortion. People go, oh, it's about a woman's right to control her own body, and that's an absolute right. No, it's not an absolute right. Also, it's irrational because there's another body involved. But this is saying something different. The reason that Christian people are so opposed to these things is not because we're heartless or discompassionate. It's because we reject the values of our society, which says that humanity is God. We say God is God, and he knows better. Our strength is nothing compared with God, and neither is that of the nations and governments of this world. He's really asking, is there anything apart from God with which he may be compared? How can you compare God to anything? And the answer is you can't. What is God, says the Shorter Catechism? God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Organized human strength does not diminish the greatness of God. He uses a word here, tohu, which is used in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and tohu, it was empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Why he's doing this is he's simply saying this. Listen, without God, everything's empty. And what Isaiah is doing, he's telling the poor, benighted people of God, behold your God. He's the creator. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's totally sovereign. How does that square with your experience? It doesn't. Because you say, I don't see that. I don't get it. And here's why you don't get it. You're not God. That's the point. You're not God. But you can still trust. The mighty international powers may cause terror for we small Judah. ISIS may terrify the Christians living in the Middle East. We might look at all that's going on in the world and be overwhelmed. And then we are told, stop, look, and see your God. Is he worthy of worship? Stephen Fry's rant, I wouldn't worship him. I wouldn't want to do so. He's not worthy of me me as a human being. Isaiah turns that completely on its head. And he says that if you see who God actually is, he is so great that worship is your only possible response. Calvin again, hence we infer that nothing can be more contrary to reason than to exalt creatures for the sake of diminishing the power of God, which is high above all and ought to be acknowledged. Don't dare exalt yourself 
or other human beings in the place of God. What an absolutely idiotic and stupid thing to do. The nations are as a bucket. And then verse 16 to the end, and I'll be as quick as I can with this. Human religion is useless without him. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. To whom then will you compare God? What image will you compare him to? As for an idol, a craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A man too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. He looks for a skilled craftsman to set up an idol that will not topple. See, you know, I know, people all over the world at all times have known that there is a God. That is a universal in human consciousness. There has never been a single society in the world where human beings have not been aware of that. So what do we do? We try to worship. But nothing we can do will adequately match the the greatness of the Creator which is why our feeble attempts at worship, human religion, does so much harm. We are aware of God. We are aware of our sin. We are aware of its impact on the world. We know we need sacrifice. But we should not invent our own religion. Again, Calvin, men wish to enjoy the presence of God, and this is the beginning and source of idolatry. For God is not present with us by an idol, but by his word and by the power of his spirit. We need revelation. We need God to tell us how we are to worship him. God to show us who he really is. Lebanon is not sufficient. Why does he mention Lebanon? Because Lebanon was a heavily wooded country with beautiful cedars whose forests were filled with many animals. And Isaiah is saying, supposing you could take the whole of Lebanon and burn the lot, it wouldn't be enough to get you to God. You'd never be able to have enough sacrifice. Psalm 50, I have no need of a bull from your store or of goats from your pens, for every animal of the forest is mine and the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird in the mountains and the creatures of the field are mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? So what is being said here is that we are under God's power. And verse 16 says he's beyond ours. We can't reach to God. We cannot control, manipulate, or appease him. All the works religion in the world, all the nationalistic religions in the world, all the religious religions in the world. Isaiah comes along with a great big stamp and he puts on it, not enough, not enough. You'll never get anywhere near the God of the universe with human religion. Because human religion is a man's eye view of God and it's useless. It's harmless. Later on, Isaiah 44 and 46, he'll go on to declaim against that. And you see, this is so important for Israel. Why? Because Babylon and Assyria had their gods, and Babylon and Assyria had defeated Judah. And so there was a great temptation. Perhaps we should worship their gods as well, just to be on the safe side. And Isaiah is saying, there's only one God. Do you know, I'm so tired of people mocking and saying, you believe in God. Which one of the 20,000 gods do you believe in? I believe not in Thor, not in the council of the gods. 
I believe in the God who is the creator of heaven and earth, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There isn't a single human-invented God who comes even remotely close to that God, not remotely close. Please do not fall for this lie which says, you worship one God, there are hundreds of others, thousands of others. There are not, not at all. Nothing can be called God except God. If you don't have the God revealed in Scripture, you have your own thoughts, imagining, and desires, or other people. And at the end of the day, it's just a human construct. Like Giles Fraser in The Guardian, an Anglican vicar saying, God is just what we call our respect for the planet. No, it's not. To me, that's as blasphemous as if he had called God the most horrendous names. It's blasphemous. It's horrendous. When we create our own gods or make ourselves God, then it's like Isaiah describes, and he's being humorous, and he's using satire. He says, you choose wood that won't rot. Okay, good solid wood of Lebanon. But it can fall over. So your God can fall over. So you have to fix it to a platform. Its beauty comes from human artistry. Its character comes from the human craftsman. Isaiah actually doesn't even mock. He just states the fact, which are sufficient. The temporal creates the eternal. The weak creates the strong. The changeable creates the unchangeable. As Paul told the Athenians in Acts 17, therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. Calvin, again, in order to know God, therefore, we must not frame a likeness of him according to our own fancy, but we must betake ourselves to the word in which his lively image is exhibited to us. Satisfied with that communication, let us not attempt anything else of our own. You cannot paint God. You can paint what God paints. You can paint the creation, but you cannot paint God. It's a human invention. Unlike the gospel, which is real good news, we did not follow, says Peter, cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. If only Giles Fraser had listened to his own creed, the 39 articles of the Anglican Church are great. The first says this, of faith in the Trinity, there is but one living and true God, everlasting, without body parts or passions, of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness, the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. And in the unity of this Godhead, there be three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay, let me apply this simply. First, if you are an unbeliever, why don't you believe? I don't have time to read it just now, but you read Romans 1. Verse 20, it says, Since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. And it says we don't acknowledge this God because of our own sin and our own idolatry. Not his lack of revelation, not his lack of power, not his capriciousness or cruelty. The God who created the whole universe is the most beautiful and glorious And we don't bow, not because he is not so, but we don't bow because we are not. Because in our arrogance and our ignorance, we create our own idols. I think religion without the revelation of the Bible does a great deal of harm. I think it results in people chopping off people's heads because they think that somehow that's to the glory of God. 
But we have the ultimate revelation, the light of the world, Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you what your biggest problem is as a Christian and what my biggest problem is. You know this, it's not even our own sin. We're so obsessed even with that. It's that our God is too small. Jonathan Edwards says this, for as God is infinitely the greatest being, so he is infinitely the most beautiful and excellent. All the beauty to be found throughout the whole creation is but a reflection of the diffused beams of that being who have an infinite fullness of brightness and glory. God is the foundation of all beauty and glory. You see, that's why art is so important. Because art just reflects glory and beauty. That's why when we sing, we're reflecting glory and beauty. That's why Christian character reflects glory and beauty. But all of it comes from God. And the devil's biggest trick is to teach us your God's too small and he's too ugly. And we need to learn he's glorious and he's bigger beyond our imagination that would completely blow our minds if we saw even a fraction of it. Please, we must not give in to the temptation to go along with the idols of our culture. We should not judge God by the shifting shadows of our culture, but we should judge our culture by the word of God. Isaiah 26, 8 says this, Yes, Lord, walking in the way of your laws, we wait for you. Your name and renown are the desire of our hearts. See, I want people to say, God is wonderful. I want people to say, Jesus is beautiful. And when I hear the mockery and I hear the blasphemy, it's not that I'm going, oh, I'm hurt, oh, that's me, or this is my religion. I'm t- saying this, I'm saying, you are attacking the most glorious and the most beautiful and the most wonderful being ever from which all other beauty and glory derives. Do you not know what you are doing? And for me, it all just comes back again to Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, Colossians 1, 15. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So you and I struggle with our faith. And we struggle in our lives. And we have sorrows and we have pains. We struggle with what we see that's going on in the world. And God's message to us is not to come to us and say, it's okay, you're great, you're doing fine, you're wonderful. God's message to us is to come and to say, behold, you're God. And there's nothing that he doesn't know And there's nothing that's out with his power. And if you wonder, how can I know that? You look at Jesus Christ and everything about God is in Jesus Christ. In human form, accommodated to us so that we can grasp and that we can see. And we can be like the small child who puts their hand in their father's hand. Though they may not understand everything that's going on, what they know is that their hand is in a safe place. And that they are in a safe place. The devil will defeat you if you do not believe that the God of the Bible is who he says he is. 
Don't create your own God. Don't fall into that trap. Instead, bow down in worship and sheer wonder that this immense, awesome God who is beyond our capacity to even begin to understand that he has come to us and he has revealed himself to us and he has shown his love for us in Jesus Christ. And then the gates of hell haven't a chance against anything that they throw against you. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.